0: And sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the Law Firm of Bose McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all of your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at Network.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Lou Gehrig, P.R. I don't even know what word I would use to describe how damn good Lou is at his job. Let's just say PR guru and super lawyer Bill Morrow. They are from opposite parties, but they have a common heart and a common goal. And we're going to talk to them about their careers. And we're going to talk to them a little bit about this project. We're going to have some fun because like all political podcasts, the Pontifex Maximus of Sport, uh, political reporters in this state in this market has come out of retirement yet again Mr. Jim Shella. thank you for joining us Jim
1: great to be here Robert I don't know what you just said
0: Pontifex Maximus it was the head of the Roman religion back in that's why the Pope is called Pontifex yeah you, did, you I mean, didn't learn that at St. Cloud State they didn't do this, that at St. Cloud State, but, but uh, thank you. Thank Lou, you. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thanks for letting Jim uh, be a part of this conversation as well. Jim knows you too better than I do, has interviewed you, covered you, and the clients and candidates you worked for. So what I'm going to do is turn it over to Jim Shella and have him uh, take you through it like the old days. <laughs>
1: well we're here talking to, to, to Lou and bill because you're working together uh, now one one is a Democrat and and one is a Republican and, and maybe what we should do is uh, for the listeners' sake just establish your partisan credentials uh, so they understand what this means um, let's start with you Lou I know uh, probably the 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 Highlight of your career is the fact that you worked in the White House for Ronald Reagan, but uh, tell us what else we should know.
2: Well, the highlight of my career was uh, teaching 18 sixth graders English and history back when I first started, but um, I worked at Indiana Central, now UND, that's where I met, then Mayor Luger, and then uh, through that relationship, I met Mitch Daniels, and they offered me a job to go to Washington to be as press secretary, and I did that and uh, got to work with a number of great people, including Mark Lubbers and Mitch and Teresa Lubbers, and, and uh, just a number of great people. There on the Hill, I got to meet the press secretary for Senator Bill Roth, and that was Jim Brady. And he and I became real close friends. And, and when he went to the White House to be the press secretary, he said, uh, You know, the White House can be a very interesting place. You need friends down here. Uh, that need to cover your back. Now, I'm not sure that's true today, but it was back then. So that was, then I came back, um, I came back to Indianapolis and then we started our PR firm 30-some years ago.
1: Uh, I, and just to make make clear, you were the press secretary for Dick Lugar in the U.S. Senate. Yes, yes. You, yeah, okay. Uh, I, Bill Morrow, you, uh, you've worked for... Uh, a couple of significant politicians in Indiana history. I know Birch Bayh and uh, his son, uh, Evan Bayh. Uh, fill us in on the rest of your background.
3: Oh, well, I, I, I'm an Army brat, and I think that's uh, relevant uh, to my biography just in terms of the way I was raised to think about uh, public service. Um, wasn't raised in Indiana, but uh, met Birch Bayh in 1974 when he was running for re-election. And we just became enthralled uh, with him and his ideals and values and went off to f- uh, freeze my fanny off in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, in his uh, presidential run and then went to work for him in uh, Washington. Um, and yeah, I-, I went to law school uh uh, while I worked for him in Washington, and then when he was uh, defeated in the uh, 80 Reagan landslide, I was finishing up law school, Ann and I decided to move to Indianapolis to uh, raise our family, and when uh, Evan decided he wanted to go into the family business, uh, this is an absolute true story. Uh, Birch By made up uh, a list of uh, former staffers that Evan ought to reach out to. Ann Morrow was on that list. She worked for Birch for 10 years and had risen to a real a position of seniority. And then as an afterthought, he said to Evan, yeah, you might want to call Bill. He might be of some use to you as well. <laughs> um, but in well, terms I, of my, yeah, in, in terms of Those who
1: may not know, Anne Ann is your wife,
3: right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, wife of 40 years. Yeah. Our marriage was the product of a, a secret office romance in Birch by office. And we were mayor, married in his hideaway office uh, in the Senate with him as as best man. So you you can imagine how much we miss uh, Birch Bay. But just as a point of clarification, in terms of my uh, partisan uh, label, uh, as a matter of Indiana law, I'm officially now a political independent because I stopped voting in party primaries uh, because of the work that uh, we're doing now. So uh, I'm in a post-partisan phase of, of my life for the time being.
1: Well, for what it's worth, I've always considered myself independent, but that means that I can vote in either primary, which which I have done. I know party leaders don't like that, but I uh, I I personally think that that nobody should uh, let an opportunity to vote go by uh, without taking advantage of it.
0: Jim, Jim, this is Robert Vane. May I ask you a quick question? Absolutely. Did you, I know we've had this discussion before about you switching and voting in some one party's primaries and another party's primaries. Was the motivation for you to vote, to vote for someone, or was it more often to vote against someone?
1: I would say more often to vote for someone and, and, you know, for what it's worth, you know, having been a, a political reporter for for more than 30 years i usually knew the people that were were running I, you know i i uh and and knew them well so uh mine mine were informed decisions
0: go ahead i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's all right um well i i think um it, you know we should talk about we've we've <laughs> vaguely mentioned this project that that uh, you were working on uh, bill and lou uh, uh and i know bill you you were the the initiator explain to us what the indiana citizen is and what you're trying to do
3: well um as uh, ann and i sat down to think about what uh life after the practice of law would look like i retired from barnes and thornburg at the end of 2019 so in around 2018 we sat down and thought about what life was going to look like in 2020 and no we didn't predict the pandemic that's for sure um but we uh it was a bucket of time for spoiling grandchildren there was a bucket of time for uh you know travel uh, and that still left some time for us to um uh, fulfill our civic obligations. And, you know, we really had a long talk about, uh, you know, how we could actually add some value. And uh, it wasn't clear we were adding much value uh, in the partisan space. Um, uh, and so uh, the idea was hatched to set up a 501c3. It's called the Indiana Citizen Education Foundation. It's strictly and scrupulously nonpartisan. We have broad bipartisan uh, support. It's- uh, evidenced by uh, a loose, strong support. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the idea. We, we had uh, followed uh, the uh, reports that have come out every two years called the Indiana Civic uh, Health Index, where it shows Indiana kind of stuck in the bottom of states for wide range of civic uh, metrics. And we thought, well, maybe this is a, a way that we can uh, make a contribution. So that's how that idea came to be. And Lou, how did you get involved?
2: Well, Bill and I had been, uh, Bill came to me to discuss it. And, and, uh, uh, and we, I just felt that we need to have more people voting. And I think that what's been missing in politics in the last few years is uh, coalitions coming, people from different parties coming together to try to solve a common problem. And so uh, our firm and I got involved personally, and, and uh, my son Ty is doing a lot of work with Bill. And so uh, we're, we're very pleased that Bill asked us. And we know it's an upro- uh, upro- uphill battle, especially now with the, uh, the virus uh, that we're in, but uh, it's worth the effort.
3: Yeah, and Lou's, uh is always being um, kind of understated here. Uh, Lou and I have known each other for decades and decades and decades. I shouldn't add too many decades uh, to that. Um, you know, we have so many uh, points of connection, common friends, that sort of thing. And I, I really went to Lou for a reality check. Um, right. Given my partisan uh, background, uh, I wanted to talk to some uh, high profile Republicans that I trusted who would really tell me uh, just be very candid with me as this kind of a non-starter? Will this idea just be dismissed as a Trojan horse for Indiana Democrats? The first Republican I talked to was uh, my dear friend and longtime law partner, uh, Bob Grand. Uh, and he was the first to sign up. Uh, he uh, suppressed, uh, expressed surprise as many people even active in the political process do express surprise at our very low levels of uh, uh, civic participation in Indiana. And, and he immediately, he immediately signed up. So uh, Lou was my second uh, stop, and he could not have been more generous. He said, Bill, how, how can we help um, Indiana? We ought to be able to do better than that. And uh, everybody who's involved in politics and public life ought to be concerned about uh, these low rankings and ready to do something about it.
1: Well, you spell out the low rankings, if you would. What is it that you're concerned about? What is it that you're, you're trying to do uh, in reaction to that?
3: Well, uh, just a a quick primer about the uh, Indiana Civic Health Index. So this was the brainchild of the Indiana Bar Foundation. A big shout out to Chuck Dunlap and the Indiana Bar Foundation. And they, uh, several years ago, enlisted the support of Randy Shepard and Lee Hamilton. Still have been uh, the two uh, most prominent uh, senior states uh, people involved in this. And then uh, Greg Zeller. Uh, Has come along in the last few years to be a big supporter uh, as well. So uh, this this is a uh, study that takes uh, national data, uh, actually data that uh, the Census Bureau accumulates every two years, um, and it permits Indiana to compare ourselves to the other 49 states in the District of Columbia across a wide range of civic metrics. The two that always stood out to me uh, are our low levels of registration and our abysmally low levels of turnout as compared to the other 49 states in the District of Columbia. And then there was a separate study done uh, uh, that was published in 2019 with 2018 data in which the Woodrow Wilson Center administered the citizenship exam uh, to tens of thousands of uh, Americans, and again, we finished in the bottom ten of states for uh, these basic uh, civic literacy metrics. So, another things that we wanted to do as part of our cause was to try to create uh, uh, unbiased information about the candidates and issues. So, it's registration information uh, and turnout.
1: And you're trying. Your your ultimate goal
3: is to increase voter turnout in Indiana, correct? Correct. The metric that uh, we care most about. Uh, is turnout, right? I mean, first of all, if you work just on registration, that's a slippery slope just because of really how misleading some of the data can be. And when, our, when I talk about this, I know I I get the backup of the Indiana Secretary of State and her team, and it's not intended to be. Heck, I was the Deputy Secretary of State when Evan by was Secretary of State. So this is of no criticism to the current Secretary of State. But Indiana, as as, as well as the rest of the country, our voter registration rolls are misleading due to death and and, and mobility. So um, if you were to just look, go to the uh, Secretary of State's website today and compare it as the numerator and compare it to the voting age population as the denominator, you'd conclude that some 94% of voting age Hoosiers are registered. So what's the big deal? Why work on registration? Well, we think the number is closer to 1.7 million Hoosiers in the voting age population who are not even registered. But, regi- you know, registration, right, doesn't mean people are going to show up in November. We see that all the time. So, right, to your point, Jim, um, we really want to try to improve turnout substantially. We set the goal of 20% improvement in 2020. Uh I was advised to try to set a moonshot goal. Well, at, at, at the moment, it seems like maybe a Pluto shot goal. <laughs> um, but all of the things being equal, uh, 20% improvement would move Indiana out of the bottom 10 to the top 10 of states. So yeah, registration well, is, what, is a critical metric. Yeah,
1: help me understand that, please. 20% above the 2018 turnout or 20% above the 2016 turnout? 16, 2016. 2016. And what was the turnout
3: in 2016? I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'm not going to trust my memory here, but it was 2,807,676. 2,807,676. So, in round numbers, we we're trying to improve turn, uh, turnout uh, by another 600,000. We're trying to, we, we think if, if, but again, right, this is one of those moments in which rankings, uh, yeah. since we're measured vis a vis the other, uh, uh, other states, I always say all of the things being equal. A 20% increase would get us out of the bottom 10 into the top 10 of states. And the reason I put that caveat in is because of what happened in 2018. Uh, In 2018, uh, Indiana, we had a record turnout, and we congratulated ourselves until the dust settled and uh, realized that we only improved our ranking a couple of points. So we came in 43rd in 2018 because the rest of the country had a record turnout. Uh, as well due to the way the president nationalized the 2018 midterms.
1: just once again help, help me understand because you're talking about a 20 cent you gave me raw numbers from 2016 what was the percentage
3: of turnout in 2016 58.3 percent and you're trying to get to 78 percent no 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 you you, you add 20 you, you just added 20 percentage points right right we're adding 20 percent onto the uh, uh, so that, that would get us into the mid sixties, right? Okay. You, you just added 20 points to 58.3. Right. You add, you, you multiply, uh, 2,800,000 times 0. 0.20. That number is about five sixty, Uh, and so that would be about a 20% increase. All right. Well, I just want
1: to make sure everybody understands this. What, what is it? Tim Russert always used to say, explain it to me. Like I'm a sixth grader.
3: Well, uh, no, it, it's, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair question, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, look, we break into the top 10 uh, by being in the high uh, 60s. Um, so, and, and there's a lot of compression, as you can imagine, uh, but we're at consistently at the bottom 10 of states by being in the high 50s. You got to be in the high 60s in order to be in the top 10 of states. All right. So which I- includes your home state. So
1: which is Minnesota and, and and you and I have talked about this i mean one reason why why let me let me come back to this because minnesota has much different voting policy uh, issues and and, and I, I, we need to discuss that. But I want to I want to bring Lou back in at this point because because Lou there there is a general belief in the political world that that high turnout benefits Democrats and and hurts Republicans. So as a Republican, why do you want to be involved in
2: this effort? I well, think I think the I think the, uh, the numbers are so low that we're just trying to get to not to the highest of high turnouts. We're just trying to move the needle some. And, and then I think it's fair game. I mean, it's always been fair game. And whenever you have your candidates out there, it's up to uh, the parties to get the vote out and to educate the, educate the vote, voters.
1: We, you, you know, I've explained uh, Bill's idea to uh, some uh, Republicans who uh, uh, are contemporaries of yours. Uh, and they talk about you know, the legendary Republican politician, Keith Bulin. Uh, had a theory that what you want to do is identify your voters and turn them out. You, you don't want to, to uh, target a, a a general voter turnout. Um, And you know, it's a partisan effort, but obviously you don't believe that.
2: Well, I think, I think it has been in the past, but I think nowadays that fewer people are identifying with a party. And um, so it's, it's uh, up to us, whether you're Republican or Democrat, to try to get your message to as many people as you can. Uh, I, Bill and I've talked about this, that back when L. Keith Buellen was around, I mean, you had strict, you had Republicans and you had Democrats, and they all know who they were. And, and, but now you have a lot of split voting. You have people that may go from one primary to the next, depending on who's running. And so it's not like the days of Elkeith Keith And And uh, I think because of the outside interest groups that have made, uh, spent a lot of money on these races uh, and have a great deal of influence over on who's gonna win. So I think party structure, although still strong in Indiana, is not what I like it used to be. And I think all of us on this phone call, except for maybe Chris, because of his age, we remember the days Okay, let's jump
1: back to the policies because because Bill, you, you referenced a uh, high voter turnout in Minnesota. One reason for that is that they have same day registration at the polls. Um, and and they also have open primaries. They are they are the sort of policies that encourage participation and and discourage uh, uh, control by the political parties. Indiana is very different. We have closed primaries. We have uh, you have to register to vote thirty days in advance of an election. Um, why is it that you're not working on trying to change the policies
3: uh, to to make voting more friendly? Well, first of all, it's uh, late September, 2020, and the legislature's out of session. But um, really from, uh, from our beginnings, right, right, as we first started talking about how we might make a difference uh, and worried about uh, the partisans retreating to their partisan corners, we made the affirmative conscious decision not to get involved in the policy discussion. Um, and part of the reason that that was really pretty practical, we didn't really step out of our silent phase onto the public stage until the publication of the, uh, latest civic health index in November of 2019, there was a short session coming up, uh, you know, how, how how many substantive changes were going to be made, uh, to the election law in the short 2020 session turns out zero. So it was it was really a conscious decision not to, uh, enter the policy debate quite yet. Well, we were drawn into the policy discussion really in the spring when uh, the decision was made correctly, we thought, uh, to move the primary a month and permit no-excuse absentee uh, voting in the primary. We were very involved advocating for that. Uh, I did any number of interviews, lavished the uh, political leaders with praise for the wisdom of that uh, decision. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we are now, I think a part of the policy discussion and assuming our little nonprofit startup is, is even around after election day, I suspect we're going to play a role, uh, in the 2021 general assembly session, trying to ask these questions, right? Okay. What's getting in the way of Indiana's, uh, voters, being able to register and show up and vote. And there are some policy choices Indiana's made uh, and some policy choices, as you point out, that other states have made. So let, let's have that discussion.
1: So having said all that, um, how are you gonna increase turnout?
3: Prayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, not not to be flipped, but um, look, uh, when we first started this in earnest, Uh, we were advised by really smart marketing people that, uh, if we were going to move the needle at all, this was a $3 million campaign, right? It's uh, think of it as an advertising marketing communications, uh, campaign. We're not going to come anywhere close to that. Uh, we have hit gale force headwinds in 2020 as a result of pandemic, as a result of the opposition of the political class to what we're doing so we're not going to raise anywhere close to that um so uh, uh i i i believe uh, uh that uh turnout will improve over 2016. hell population growth will take should take care of that uh but we're not going to come anywhere close to increasing turnout by uh, 600,000. Uh, we we're not going to come anywhere close so will we have made a contribution well I guess we'll sit down on November 4th, and that's a decision that's going to be made by, especially about, by our donors, as to whether we made a difference. Uh, I think we will have contributed something uh, to, uh, to the to the quality of discussion and informed voting by this information platform.
1: Okay. Well, Lou, I think it, your role in this is, is uh, I, I'm guessing, is to help get the information out. Tell me how you're doing that.
2: Well, that's, and that's been one of the things that, uh, you know, we've gotten dealt with a number of uh, social media, television interviews, radio, newspaper interviews, and and I think the awareness factor has, has increased. Um, again, we want to translate it into numbers, and that's going to take, uh, take some time. I mean, we are in unusual times right now, trying to make things up as we go, but the awareness, uh, I think, has increased. Bill's been uh, recognized throughout the state as being uh, an expert on this issue. So uh, we've been able to do that, uh, and not with $3, $3 million. So, million. We're going to see TV ads?
3: Only if they are aired as PSAs, and some of those are running, Jim. So, right, we, we uh, had hoped to be able to have the resources to, to pay to put those on. Um, but, uh, we, we, uh, our, our ad agency element three produced some great radio spots, TV spot, uh, uh, billboards, uh, and we are doing some paid social media, not anywhere near at the level that we, we had hoped, but yeah, you may see our, our TV ad if you're up at uh, three o'clock in the morning, uh, some morning. Um, but a- actually the radio stations have especially have been a very generous in running our radio ads. Uh, SPSAs, uh, And, you know, lately we, we've gotten a couple of uh, high-profile endorsements. Pete Buttigieg endorsed what we're doing, and we did some paid social media behind his endorsement. John Mellencamp endorsed what we're doing. And we have a, a media kit on our website, onemorevoice.com. Go to onemorevoice.com. And um, so I've been really, really pleased with uh, what our agency, Element 3, has produced uh, for us. And, and uh, back to what Lou said, I, I, I couldn't be more grateful for the hard work that Lou and Ty and his entire team, I mean, they've really gone uh, the extra mile to uh, create opportunities for me to spread the word uh, about what we're doing. Uh, so now it's called earn media, right? And our day it was called free media. And now I know why, now for sure, I know why it's called earn media. <laughs> Lou and Ty and his team worked hard to earn uh, that media
1: Robert you've worked on some campaigns uh, do you, what do you think of this
0: well I also uh, administered five elections for the from the voters of Marion County in 2003 four and six and you know there always was a flurry of people who registered at the last minute turnout was always low I, I think that the uh the Barack Obama campaign probably did turn out as well as anyone could in 2008. Uh, what they did was uh, significant, And which makes the fact that Mitch Daniels carrying Marion County in 2008, winning Marion County while Barack Obama was shattering records as far as uh, winning margin, goes to lose points. I used to tell Mayor Ballard, your, your audience for what you're saying, is the person with the Obama sign and the Daniels sign in their front yard. And in Marion County, there were a lot of those. And so to the extent I agree with Lou 100% that party affiliation is important, but it's not as dispositive as it was a generation ago for sure.
1: Well, I think, you know, Barack Obama and Mitch Daniels are both great examples that it's candidates who drive turnout. It's, it's not necessarily parties. It's not issues. It's candidates.
0: Enthusiasm matters. And both of those candidates had it in considerable volume in 2008. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinleys Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood caterpillar dealer. Our guests on the podcast today are Bill Morrow and Lou Gehrig. Our co-host is Jim Shella. It's been a terrific conversation so far. I wanna talk just a little bit about your respective careers. Uh, Bill and Lou, were you in DC at the same time? Did you meet back then? Bill mentioned decades and decades and decades. So uh, can you pinpoint that for us? Well,
2: Yes, we were there. He was on Birch's staff and uh, I was on Senator Luger's staff. So did not know each other well, but I knew who Bill was. And uh, uh, we always had a friendly competition. Uh, one time, uh, Mitch, anytime there was a vote, I'm not sure Bill remembers this. I'm sure he will after I tell him. If there was a vote and Luger voted one way and Birch Bayh voted the other, uh, our chief of staff, Mitch Daniels, always felt that it was proper to send a mailing back to Indiana with uh, Senator Luger's vote circled and Birch Bayh's vote circled. Now, we were, each, each Senate office has given so many sheets of paper to do these kinds of activities. And uh, one time, and I think probably, I don't know who uh, said a reporter said, go over there to the, uh, check the, check the number of mailings that people send out and see which states are one and two. Well, California was one. And Indiana Dick Lugar was number two. Now you're only a lot allotted so many sheets of paper, but we had a wonderful person in our office by the name of Albert Mitchler who traded sheets of paper with other members of the Senate so that we could send out more mailings. But that
0: was uh,
3: yes, we used send those mailings out all the time.
0: Yeah, we did a podcast. Go ahead, go ahead, Bill. You finish your. Well,
3: I was just going to say I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations says run on that audacity that was just uh, admitted to uh but i think m- m- more importantly is that folks ought to uh understand that uh, birch by and dick luger had great respect for each other became very 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 close friends and the tone that they set uh also extended to the staff now were the staffs competitive yes the staffs were competitive Uh, To lose point. Did we always want our guy to get out ahead on news and, you know, be the one. Right. In fact, during the Carter years, uh, Democrat, the White House, uh, we always got uh, first jump on all of the grants and contracts and that sort of stuff. We got we you know, uh, there was just an acceptance. Right. That uh, that Birch Bayh's office would get that news uh, out first. But at at the staff level, we were uh, very collegially together together. across the board on many issues. The competition Let's... between Birch Bayh and Dick Luger ended in 1974. When Dick Luger took office in the Senate in 1977, they started a friendship that lasted the rest of their lives. And, uh, you know, y- 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 you read about that. And if, y- if you weren't a part of it, you would think, ah, okay, well, it's, you know, somebody's glossing over. No, the two of them uh, went to their graves, sadly, very close together, the closest of friends.
0: And I should say, we did a Leaders and Legends podcast on the career of Dick Luger, Senator Luger, and we also did one on the career of Birch Bayh. And how closely they worked together was brought out in those podcasts, which you can find on the All Indiana Podcast Network.com. Lou, how stunned were you, or were you stunned, when? Dan Quayle beat Birch by who was running for his fourth term beat him in the 1980 election. Well, I
2: was on the staff then and uh, with about three weeks to go, we got a phone call that uh, that the numbers were fairly close. And so Mitch took a three week vacation and went back to help run the campaign. And, I think that we were, you know, 1980, uh, kind of like 16, 2016 was, uh, there just seemed to be something going on that we weren't sensing, but it was, it was uh, you know, with the election of Ronald Reagan, and, and so we were, we were not surprised, not shocked, but I think we were surprised, but going with three weeks to go in the campaign. Uh, the quail campaign reached out to Mitch and said, we think we got a, We think we got a shot at this.
0: Uh, so and, 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 uh, go ahead. and Luger served until 2012. And I worked on a, a Luger super PAC uh, for that primary in which he lost. And then we subsequently just tossed away a United States Senate seat. So folks, even younger people say in their 20s and 30s, remember uh, Luger and his impact and his stature for sure. You'd have to be a little bit older to understand what a magnificent Senator Birch Bayh was and what a Titan he was in Indiana politics and in the Senate. Bill, did you get a sense that you were working for one of the truly great men in American government?
3: The easiest question, the answer to that is absolutely, uh, yes, um, I, I've got to I gather my composure even to talk about him uh, now. Um, you know, next second only to my own father, Birch Bayh had an enormous impact on my life in so many ways, including my, my marriage and everything that's come from that. I want to back up though a second and talk about the 1980 election. Uh, I didn't know until this moment that Mitch Daniels. Came back and took a three week uh, vacation to work on the Quayle campaign. Uh, and I'd be pissed off, but for the fact that I know that Mitch Daniels had absolutely nothing to do with Dan Quayle's victory. And that's not to be churlish, that's just simply to state a, a historical fact. When you look at what happened on election night 1980, my recollection is that eight incumbent United States, uh, Democratic United States senators lost that night due to the magnitude of the Reagan uh, landslide. So uh, again, I don't want to be snarky, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I was later in a uh, job interview, which I didn't get uh, when you, when you hear the punchline, I was later in a job interview at Ice Miller, Donadio and Ryan, uh, in which uh, Harry Gonzo was uh, interviewing me and uh, reflected that as it turned out, uh, Republicans could have um, nominated Daffy Duck, and Daffy Duck would have beaten Birch Bay that night. And I said, "Well, I think you did nominate Daffy Duck," and uh, <laughs> and uh, and he said, "Well, you know, I don't think this uh, interview is going very well." And I agreed with him. I never. That was the only law firm in town. I never got a job offer.
0: From this <laughs> I think we should note that Harry Gonzo was chief of staff for the first few years of the Mitch Daniels time as <laughs> governor. The other question I want to say, or th- here's what I want to say very quickly to defend Bill. I know he's not a grudge holder, because the last time I saw Bill, I was having lunch at the working man's friend with Mark Miles. And if you listen to the Mark Miles podcast on Leaders and Legends, you will know that Mark was the campaign manager for Dan Quayle for oh. Senate 1980. So Bill does not hold grudges, that's for sure. Another question I wanted to ask real quickly about Mitch Daniels, since he keeps getting brought up is, Bill, were you at law school with him at the same time? You both went to Georgetown and D.C.
3: Yeah, well, the answer to that is we were, we, we, we overlapped. Um, but I think that uh, Mitch Daniels and I may have set some sort of ignominious record for the few classes that we attended. <laughs> we were both both in the night program, the four year night program, and believe me, we had uh, you know more than full-time jobs. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, Mitch had the nickname the Ghost uh, at Georgetown, uh, uh, of course, he didn't need to attend class because he's so doggone smart. Uh, I did need to attend class and didn't. And uh, my transcript, which I keep under lock, lock and key, would, uh, would prove that.
0: One of the things we like to do in the Leaders and Legends podcast is to talk to folks who were in the room or were involved in amazing events. And pretty soon on the Leaders and Legends podcast, you will uh, listen to our interview with Clint Hill. The Secret Service man who climbed aboard the Kennedy limousine in Dallas in November of 1963. But we have someone on today, Lou Gehrig, along with his friend Bill Morrow. But Lou was in the room for the aftermath of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, March 30th, 1981. Lou, I've read a couple of interviews in which you talk about that day. You mentioned earlier that you worked for Jim Brady, who was Reagan's uh, press secretary, who was grievously injured that uh, morning. Please talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about what that day was like, not only from a friend perspective, but as a you know PR media guy.
2: Well, we were we had become good friends and normally and uh, another Hoosier great by the name of Bill Gaither was having a concert that night at Constitution Hall. And so usually when my wife Beverly would come in, I would take the bus in and then I'd uh, meet Jim Brady in Arlington. And we'd come in to the White House in his yellow, yellow Jeep. So we rode in together and, um, uh, we always had breakfast together about 615, 630 in the morning and kind of got our agendas, what we wanted to do. And then, uh, his news conference was, uh, not his news conference, but he always briefed the press around noon. Well, the irony of this is Mark Blubbers was in that last uh, news conference with him. Mark and Mitch and I and a gentleman by the name Shaw had gone to the NCAA, NCAA basketball tournament in Philadelphia on Saturday. And, we, and Mark was at Harvard. We drove back. So uh, Mark was there for the last one. And we walked out. And uh, Jim says, well, who's going to go with the president? Now, I never traveled with the president inside the city. I would travel with him on the plane and I was in the press plane when we would go outside of uh, the state, the state, or go outside of Washington D.C. So, like if we were going to Notre Dame or Texas or something like that. So um, there, Bill and Gloria Gaither, I just called over to the uh, president's secretary and I asked her, I said, uh, when's the president gonna be back? And they said, she said, well, it'll be about 40 minutes. So I said, can these people come over and get a tour of the Oval Office? And she said, yes. And my assistant took them over there. Well, it was during that time that we were alerted that uh, there'd been a shooting, that the shots had been fired. And at that point, the irony of all of this is it happened early in the afternoon around 1 or 1.30. At four o'clock, we were gonna meet with the Secret Service to talk about what do we do if there's a crisis? So in the afternoon, we, ironically, we were going to meet with the Secret Service to talk about what to do during a crisis. And we were in the midst of one right then. And everybody was very professional about what needed to be done. And um, one of the things we we had to try to notify the parents of Jim that their son had been shot. And it was during that time that it was reported that uh, Jim had died, which was not the case. And so uh, also, so we went over to the, press room and had Larry Speaks do, the, he was the deputy press secretary, and he did the, the, uh, the discussion and the answers and questions. And it was about that time we left, and here comes uh, an Ale- Alexander Haig sweating, and he says, I've got to go to the podium. So we stand there and just kind of listen, and he starts announcing that he's in charge. And uh, and the irony of it was, is he was, had been in the situation room. And everybody around there looked up, and they had no clue. They thought he had left to go to the restroom, and they said, "Well, there's an old tape of uh, Alexander Haig. and he was was (laughs) to say, "It was not tape; it was real."
0: From his (laughs) Nixon years as chief of staff, I was going to ask you when what were your thoughts when he went up there to do his Doctor Strangelove routine?
2: You know, uh, he always treated me with respect, but at that time, I thought to myself, "He he's just sealed his." future around here because that was totally uncalled for but he felt and, that larry speaks had said something that was going to alert the foreign powers that was not what they needed to hear but that was not the way that was not the way the, the show was supposed to run so uh
0: and, so did, was, you, and did, was did you enjoy um, I'm forgive me did you maintain your long i mentioned jim brady was hurt uh, grievously yes. as i said um what was it like to maintain your friendship with him and well, stay in contact?
2: He's We stayed in contact. He then moved to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, which is, as Bill knows, is what they call the Washington, D.C. capital, the summer capital. And and um, so he had a house there, and we used to go there every year, and we would see him. And I brought him back here once. He came back and spoke uh, to a college. they uh, spoke at Anderson University, spoke to IU Health, and uh, spoke to – a group of Boy Scouts, so he came back here. So I'd seen him once every six months, and uh, he still had a sense of humor. And um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a long day. I mean, I mean, I didn't leave the White House for forty eight hours.
0: And you mentioned earlier a trip to Philadelphia with with Mark Lubbers. Is there a particular reason you went to Philadelphia to watch the NCAA tournament uh, that oh, weekend? The
2: That's right. The Hoosiers. Were, the Hoosiers were in it. And uh, we had great seats, Uh, thanks to the university, thanks to the Kentucky senators. They gave us, they, Kentucky didn't make it. So they said, here, you take our seats. So we did. I didn't go back Monday night. I mean, there was no way I could, even under normal circumstances. But, uh, so Mark came down and we went, took him to the last news conference to Jim Brady.
0: And Monday night, uh, March 30th, 1981, IU beat North Carolina for the national championship. This is where I should note that uh, Bill Moreau is a proud Boilermaker. And I'm sorry you didn't get to experience any joy that year. It's your turn, Bill. I
3: must tell you, I I won (laughs) a, a ton of money. Uh, by betting on my Boilermakers in 80, right? We had a law school pool. And they went to the final four that year. And I won 250 bucks just by, you know, having Purdue go all the way, you know, all the way to, to win the championship. So, uh, little did I know that was the high water mark of. Our <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we should note that we had Ray Tolbert center for the 1981 or forward for the 1981 national championship team of IU on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, for the next few minutes, Jim Shell is going to take back over and then we will finish with the five questions with these two august gentlemen, Jim.
1: Well, I mean, just listening to you two, uh, Bill and Lou, it's uh, interesting because you've you've been very involved in politics, uh, but you've also been very involved in government. Uh, and and what you're talking about mostly is is government. I haven't heard very much about uh, campaigns or, or races. Uh, most people think that that. Uh, uh, you know, it's the politics that's fun, uh, and and the government that's that's drudgery. Is uh, is that a misconception? Go
3: ahead, Bill. Well, look, there is a, a group of uh, political—they call themselves professionals, but uh, they're, they're, they're more aptly be characterized as political hacks—who would tell you that government is something that you do between campaigns. Um that was certainly not the tradition in which Lou and I were uh, came of age. Um, You campaigned in order that you could govern in order that you could try to make a difference in people's lives. Um, So uh, yeah, I I guess I would just observe that uh, uh, for that, for those uh, benighted souls who all they get up every day and, and is, and worry about winning the next election at any cost. And then leave governing to uh, for those who are there to pick up the pieces. I, you know, kind of shame on you. But I'll tell you this: uh, that I've learned a lot in this. Learned a lot in the last couple of years working on this Indiana Citizen uh, project. Is that um, you know many 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 Hoosiers that I've had contact with, those who've uh, come to our cause, Republicans and Democrats. Literally, we've got financial supporters from literally across the political. Uh, spectrum each and every one of them wants to make indiana a better place and uh and so they view campaigns as is uh, you know it's just a necessary evil to get us to the next chapter uh in in, in governing and having spent uh, much of my uh life uh in, in government i can tell you that um always been very, very impressed by the quality of people who are drawn to government. You know, you think about the, uh, the demands that are placed upon our public servants, all the scrutiny, all the long hours and the low pay. Um, and I, I think uh, Indiana has uh, drawn to, uh, uh, to its public servants, some really, really remarkably talented people, uh, regardless of their party, are really motivated by trying to do the uh, best that they can for the people of the state of Indiana. Lou, your take.
2: Well, I, I think again, Bill and I both work with two giants. And so every day was uh, an adventure in what are we going to do to change the world or make the state of Indiana better. And, and I think too the, uh, when you serve on the early staff, uh, there, there's, a special, I mean, there's a special bond between those people that served on the early staffs of some of these people. I mean, I listened to your podcast about um, Eric Colton, and, and you look at the uh, Congress from the Hostetler staff, very, I mean, you look at where those people are now today. You look at where the people were that served with Birch By in those early years. You look where Senator Luger, where they are. And, and, um. Uh, just, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, politics, yes, it was important to get reelected or get elected, but there also was a lot of excitement working with the staff, uh, working for a boss like Senator Lugar or Senator Bayh.
1: What, we've touched on this uh, in our discussion, but, you know, the real story in American politics at the moment is, is divisiveness. And, 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 uh, uh, you know, the, the recent death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and uh, all the discussion that took place immediately thereafter uh, probably is a good example. Uh, there are many others. Um, can it be repaired? You folks, you folks got started at a time. You, you talked about how, how uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats got along and worked together.
3: There's not a lot of that right now.
1: Will it come back?
3: Well, look, I, I, I think that uh, redistricting, gerrymandering, the uh, necessity of uh, just party fealty in order to get through the next party, primary, excuse me, has certainly uh, played a role. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how to put the reaction to Justice Ginsburg's death into some uh, perspective, except to say that it was... Just a few years ago that Justice Scalia died, and we remember the uh, debate uh, that that uh, touched off. You'd hope that maybe in the moment there'd be a civics lesson about the role of the president and the Senate in the selection of a uh, Supreme Court justice. But, Jim, I I don't see uh, a return to uh, the the, uh, politics that Lou and I grew up in. I don't see that any time soon. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, at the risk of uh, sounding like I'm reverting back to my partisan tendencies, a change uh, in the White House, I think I'll have a change, there'll be a change in the tone emanating from that building, uh, to be sure. Uh, What that does to the quality of discussion um, uh, throughout the rest of the country, I guess, will remain uh, to be seen. But uh, I, I don't I don't see this hyper partisanship uh, going away any uh, anytime soon. Um, if, if 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 politicians don't fear the general election, that is to say, if they if they are they're not concerned about putting together a coalition to get to 50.1 percent in the general election, if all they care about is getting through their party primary, what's the point? Right. what? what and that's a result busy. of
2: gerrymandering, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lou? Well, I'm an optimist. And I think that we've hit on kind of a tone, uh, and that is the quality of the candidates moving forward. I'm not going to reflect on the two candidates for president now, because I think what has happened is the system has been overtaken by outside influences and not the political parties. Uh, uh, we've got more money coming in from, not from Republican or Democrat uh, sources are coming from outside sources and they're spending a lot of money. And, and, and so, um, I think again, you get, you go back to Evan by the Democrats, when Evan by was running for governor, uh, were struggling and all of a sudden they came up with this fresh, young, talented face and he made the difference. And and Mitch Daniels was a different person. And so uh, I think you've got to find the quality of the candidates at all levels. But the problem is the quality that we would like to see, they don't want to run because they don't want to put their families through the experience that they have to go through and the things they have to say to get elected. And so, uh, like I said, I want to be an optimist. But uh, I'm
0: a realist right now. Let me ask a quick question before we get to the five questions. Uh, Lou, I'll go to you first and then I'll, I'll go to Bill. Lou, you worked for Senator Luger. Right. Mitch Daniels was chief of staff, then became governor. How much were Richard Luger and Mitch Daniels alike? And what do you think Mitch learned from his boss, Senator Luger? And then, Bill, I'm going to ask you about Birch and Evan Bay next. Lou,
2: well, there's no doubt that 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 Senator Luger was, and again, i Senator By was a class act, also. But for Senator Luger, um, was to look at an issue and come up with a way that it would solve a major problem. He was the only one of the few Republicans that supported the bailout for New York City. And and uh, but what he did is he put a caveat in there that the unions, if if New York City defaulted, then the, the unions in New York City they had to pay the money, and not that not the federal government. So they everybody had skin in the game. Um, what Mitch learned, I, I think. Mitch, of course, uh, is is one of the smartest guys I've ever known. And I think Mitch, what Mitch learned from Luger was uh, trying to serve all the people, not just one segment, but to try to serve all of them. You know, Mitch, uh, uh, both of them, retail politics was not necessarily Dick Luger's strength. Uh, Phil Jones of CBS News who was from Fairmount, Indiana, and was very good friends of ours, used to say, when you ask Dick Luger, what the time, what time is, he'll tell you how to make the watch, And, and Mitch, when he started out, was not, retail politics was not, he had run campaigns, and Jim, you saw this, I mean, he transformed himself into doing something he really enjoys and doing well at, and that is getting out and meeting the people. And uh, he does that now at Purdue. So uh, I, I think they both had the same. Once they were both very, very smart, very hardworking, and they were looking for solutions outside the box.
0: Bill, you worked for both Birch Bayh in the Senate and was chief of staff to his son, Evan Bayh, not only Secretary of State, but in the governor's office. How would you compare those two men?
3: Well, we are all the product of two parents. So uh, <laughs> um, your question goes to um, Evan's similarities, I guess, with uh, his father. And they were many. Of course, uh, they were raised uh, differently, for sure. Um, you know the biography of Birch Bay, how he was raised and uh, his last years in high school um, on the farm. Um and growing uh, prize, uh, tomato crops, uh, and, then Evan, uh, of course, who, uh, moved with his parents to Washington DC at the age of uh, seven and spent his formative years, uh, in Washington, uh, DC, but fundamentally they were very similar in terms of their core values, uh, in terms of their, uh, dedication to public service the uh the idea that uh we ought to get up every day trying to figure out how to make indiana uh, a better place they were uh they were identical uh, and, I, and i gotta tell you that uh if you read evan's book about his father right he wrote a book um really dedicated to the lessons that he learned from his father and if you'd had the sad experience that i had of working with Evan on his father's uh, memorial service, uh, you have an understanding of just how much uh, Evan revered his father. Um, and he, you know, in, in, in a sense, you know, uh, to all of us, Birch Bayh was a little larger than life, you know, even even though uh, we knew him uh, so well because of just, just the amount of uh, energy he brought every day uh, to uh, to politics and, and, and government uh, and his uh, core value is, is sensitivity, particularly the needs of working people and, and those uh, less fortunate. So I like to say that Evan got the best of both parents.
0: Well, I should um, mention here before we go to the five questions that Merch um, Bay was worshipped in my household when I was a kid. And I remember vividly my mother crying when Marvella by Evans mother died at a very, very young age. It's time for the five questions. We end every podcast with the same five and we will go in, Oh, let's go in alphabetical order. So Lou, you're going to be up first on all these questions. Shella, You we've already asked you these five questions, but you feel free to shame or chime in based on their answers. First question, Lou, what was your first job? Well,
2: you mean out of college or before?
0: Before. First job where you made your own money.
2: Uh, uh, My parents decided because I like to get up at 430 in the morning that I start passing papers. So I passed the Anderson Herald paper at 430 in the morning.
0: About what year was that?
2: Oh, let's see. That was uh, probably 1957.
3: I was 12. Bill? My first job was delivering the Leavenworth Times in Leavenworth, Kansas (laughs) at the age of uh, 13.
0: Inside or outside the prison?
3: (laughs) Well, as you know, Robert... Uh, there's Fort Leavenworth, which is the home of the Command and General Staff College, which is where my dad was at the time.
0: <laughs> uh, I should notice that there are uh, several journalists on this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, Lou worked at a newspaper. Bill did, obviously. Jim was the dean of the White of the White House of the State House <laughs> reporters. Uh, Chris Spangle has a uh, podcast. We are libertarians. I think that qualifies him. Uh, and I was a broadcast journalist uh, in the army. Question number two, Lou, what was your first concert?
2: Well, it probably was the Beach Boys in the 60s. Down, down at uh, downtown Indianapolis at the State
3: Fair. Bill? Well, first concert being, uh, you know, not a band concert or, or you know, because you, if you grow up on an Army as I did, you were subjected to a lot of John Phillips susan marches. <laughs> <laughs> Those probably don't count as my uh, first uh, concert, but I have uh, a, a rather vague uh, recollection of my first Grateful Dead concert in the fall of 1970. Yeah, how many followed? <laughs> <laughs> a, a few.
0: How many Grateful Dead concerts have you been to?
3: Six. I was certainly wouldn't characterize myself as a deadhead because I had to grow up too quickly and
0: graduate
3: <laughs> and go to work and get on with
0: life. Number three, Lou, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose?
2: I'll I tell you the, 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 the book, it's the book uh, about Truman.
0: The David McCullough book?
2: David McCullough, that and uh, anything with LBJ, I'm a real LBJ follower because I give credit, and there were several people, but LBJ was the key in getting civil rights legislation passed because only a Southern Democrat president could could have gotten that done. And uh, so those would be two, if you're interested in politics, five days in Philadelphia about Wendell Wilkie,
3: you know, those would be three. Bill? I'm going to surprise you. I'll probably be your only guest that would ever mention uh, this book. But uh, particularly for those of us who've spent any time inside politics and government, it's a little known book called shut up, show up, come back when you uh, F up <laughs> by Carville and Bagala. Uh, it, 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 it Honest to goodness, uh, when it first came out, I bought a hundred of those to send them out to clients and friends so that they would have some appreciation for the lessons that can be learned if you spend some time inside politics and and government. It's a great overlooked book, easy read, great, great lessons, especially for those of us who spend some time in politics and government.
0: Number four, Lou, if you could witness any event in history... Be there in person as it happens. Which event would you choose?
2: You mean if I could participate also in that event? You
0: you could participate. You could stand on the sidelines. Up to you.
2: Well, I think it would be uh, me teeing off on the first hole of the Masters uh,
3: in second place.
0: (laughs) Now that's a unique answer, Bill.
3: Uh, I'd like to be present for the Gettysburg Address.
0: Number five, Lou, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record, whom would you choose? Winston Churchill. Living today. Living, pal. Oh, <laughs> <a> living. <laughs>
2: well, other than Bill Moreau.
0: Hey, Jim Shell is sitting right there.
2: Jim Shell. Yeah. Um, Um, there are so many. Um, you know, um,
1: I struggled with this one too, Lou. Yeah.
0: This is why you don't get the questions ahead of time because we like to <laughs> yeah. struggle.
2: You know, um, I probably one of the most significant days of my life was seeing the Iran hostages come back. And I was on the street at Constitution Avenue with Phil Jones. Probably would be one of them, one of the surviving members of the Iranian hostages.
0: Terrific answer. Terrific. Bill?
3: Well, up until a few days ago, I would have said, and I was prepared to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I can't say that. Uh, and so uh, I, I would have to say uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, if I, you know, if, if spend a couple of hours uh, with him completely uh, off the record, get a chance to talk about his life and and all that he's uh, learned uh, along the, the way. Uh, I, I, I really do think setting aside partisanship, if we can, uh, for a moment. He has been such a consequential Figure in world history. That is indisputable, I think.
0: One of the things we try to do on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we do it often with the help of the wonderful Jim Shella, is to bring Republicans and Democrats together who are friends, who have worked together, who have maybe fussed a bit at each other in the political world, but have worked together in terms of government for the betterment of our city and state. We had Ed Tracy and Jim Kittle on, Paul Lokison and Michael Connor. Ed Tracy required a little bit of a delay uh, in the <laughs> in the recording because there was some editing that needed to be done, but we love him regardless. And we had Louis Mayhern and John Mutz, and we hope to have uh, some others and it's important for us to have folks on who get along because this civilization and this society doesn't advance Without it, I should mention we had Robin Winston and Mike McDaniel on for a rollicking conversation. Uh, you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group. The McGinleys Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast have been Bill Morrow and Lou Gehrig, longtime friends. We have been joined by co-host Jim Shella, and I'll say the same thing about all three of these men. If you look up the words respect, genuine and kind, you will find no better example. Thank you all for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at Strategies.com. That's robert at Strategies.com.